Joan and I thought we would start with. Um, uh, I thought I would I would start by framing what we're going to talk about in terms of uh, reminding you about the Buddha's teaching about impermanence, and set it in a context of. Uh, uh, why is it important to talk about impermanence? There's a certain way in which you say, well, who doesn't know about impermanence? You know, yesterday isn't going to happen again. This morning's breakfast is gone, and so is last election and the last Super Bowl and everything else in the same, in the same past. And this moment passing as we have it, to what, uh, what good will it do me to uh, have the understanding of impermanence more fully embodied in me. How can I embody it more fully? How can I know it more than fully? You can tell somebody that. When I heard about it in the beginning of my practice, people said this is one of the things that you want to really experience for yourself. I thought, who doesn't know? You know that. Uh, how will it be different if it comes to me in a contemplative way? Wow, that breath just passed. Everything passes. How will that be different than if you tell it to me, it sounds like perfectly garden variety wisdom, and just tell it to me plain. And it actually is different if uh, those moments in which it comes suddenly, <gasps> it's true, it's passing as fast as it's coming. And the corollary of that, which is you never know what's coming, really. You think you know what's coming. What we were looking about in yesterday's paper was that really enormous rash of tornadoes in the Midwest. And there's a, a picture of a woman uh, walking on the completely destroyed remains of, uh, of her restaurant in Pierce City, Missouri, I think. Pierce City, Missouri. And so here's her whole restaurant, her whole life all set up. It's going along, you don't know, and it's gone from one moment to the next. And I, I was also struck by the fact that... Um, that this is not so different from the pictures of destruction that we've been seeing in the paper for some weeks that were destruction that weren't um, the kind of caused by nature and you can't do anything about them once. Also to think something about that. But to somehow begin to frame a conversation in terms of um, there isn't really a place of security that the, the... Aside from acts of people, acts of nature, acts of our own body, we never know when we're going to go to the doctor and they're going to say, you know what, you have a lump. Or you know what, you have, uh, you have high cholesterol, you need to take medicine. You have high blood pressure, you need to take medicine. How long? For the rest of your life you need to take this medicine. All of a sudden there's a shift and the whole former part of your life wasn't happening and the whole rest of your life is happening. And, and, you know, in a certain way, every day, there's something that isn't going to happen. The whole rest of your back of your life happened, and the whole rest of your life is going to happen. But it's always a startle. It's always a startle. And it's always an accommodate. And I think to myself, it's one long accommodate from the beginning to the end. Everything is a challenge. And then, and we do it. We were so brave and heroic to have lives. And pretend that it's okay. Actually, to pretend that we're having fun. <laughs> and to want more of it at the end, which is really strange. <laughs> and to actually want to do something for other people. How does that happen? 
So the last thing I want to say, just to frame this, because I think it will fit in with what we were talking about uh, in terms of uh, a peacemaker, uh, an initiative for, for making peace. What will we say yes to when we say no to violence or to war? Uh, and and uh, the inherent impulse, I think, in human beings, um, as a number of people said, to be caretakers, to take care of each other. Because I, I think that there's a way in which when we realize our vulnerability from one minute to the next, our fragility, and that we don't, we really don't know. When we, see our, when we say, I'll see you next week, we really don't know. Um, there's a line from the Dhammapada that says, whoever... Um, realizes impermanence, ceases to be contentious. Mm. That's really probably my favorite line in the Dhammapada. If you see that we are all walking on the razor's edge all the time, you don't know. We would just be so careful with each other. Mm. Say, watch out, take care of yourself. You know, we've stopped saying goodbye on the phone. People started to say, take care a while ago. Did you notice that? Actually, with most, most of my friends, I say I love you before you hang up mm. because um, take care goes without saying. And uh, it's partly a recognition that you don't know that you're going to say anything to that person ever again. So it would be nice if the last thing you said was. So. Anyway, here is Joan. And uh, we talked last night. And Joan was talking about uh, some of the things that she knows about how the body responds to the stresses of the mind's challenge to accommodate all the time and how the mind holds up. So I thought she would teach you something. She's an eminent person in the field of psychoneuroimmunology, so she'll tell you about it. This is Joan. And we'll talk. I'll feel free to stop her and say, hey, say that again. And then she'll say something and we'll, t we'll teach each other. So it's you. Thank you. <laughs> What an incredible treat to be here. I, you know, I can't imagine. I was actually supposed to be sitting the retreat with Sokni Rinpoche, and then other things happened, and I ended up visiting Sylvia, and then I'm on my way to Ukiah to visit my two sons who live there, which is so sweet because I'll be there for Mother's Day, and I'll be there. One just bought a new house, and I'll help the other one plant a garden, and sometimes impermanence is delightful. There's a flow. I wrote an email to a friend and I said, I don't know what I'm going to do for these 10 days, but it feels like a road trip where I get to ride on the currents of love and just see what unfolds next. So who knew? Here I am. And just in terms of, of the science, you know, and the, and the stress, my field for many years has been the mind-body connection. By training, I was a cancer cell biologist and immunologist. And then I became a clinical psychologist. And since 1967, I was working with Dr. Herbert Benson. And I was interested originally in what it was in the mind, what it was in our thoughts that changed our bodies because his original question was actually about blood pressure. And that was that blood pressure could be a learned response and it would be high sometimes and low other times. And what was it 
about the way that we thought and then the way that thoughts led to emotions that could change blood pressure? That was his original question. And then I got really interested in the immune system. And it turns out that you can condition the immune system as easily as blood pressure. Uh, if the, you, can, you can give a person or an animal a substance that increases their immune function and give it to them with a funny taste. And if you just give them the funny taste, the same thing will happen to their immune system. So the immune system is like Pavlov's dogs. And then that, of course, got me interested in stress. And stress got me interested in meditation. Because the question is, really, what, what is stress? What gives rise to stress? What are the mental habits and the patterns of being that then take up a root in your body? And this is really what I've done for the last... When was 1967? <laughs> 36 years ago? I've been doing this for 36 years. Long, long time. And I think the fascinating thing, I ran for a number of years a mind-body clinic at, back in Boston at one of the Harvard teaching hospitals. And people came there who had stress-related illnesses which is virtually anything you can think of, is either caused by stress or it's made worse by stress. We've all had that experience. I'm prone to migraine headaches. And believe me, when I'm stressed, that's when they come. And they get much, much worse. That's when clusters of them will arise. And back then, we were... I think the, the thing that probably touched me the most in the years I ran that clinic was the clinic we ran for people with AIDS, which started before the time that the virus existed. And you talk about impermanence. I remember in the first years of that, a young man coming to me and saying, this year I've lost 17 friends to this illness, whatever it is. And there is no ground upon which I stand. And I began to learn a lot about stress from people who had cancer or people who had AIDS, and the rug was pulled out of them, and there was no ground anymore. And I realized those were the moments when, very truly, you do die, Sylvia, to who you are in those moments, and you have not yet been reborn to who you might be, and it takes a lot of faith to think that there's anything to be reborn to. My best friend who I told you about, Janet Quinn, wonderful, wonderful woman. She, um, she did a lot of the original research on therapeutic touch. Janet calls these times between dying and rebirth the time between no longer and not yet, mm. which that it does, that's an mm moment, isn't it? Sometimes... I give a talk and the only thing someone would remember is that. And to say, uh, I remember being in a time between no longer and not yet. And that's when the truth of impermanence really comes to you. And when you have a choice as to what to do with your mind, and you can see very clearly what it does to your body. And as a psychologist, I became really aware that some people despair in that place between no longer and not yet. 
and that despair has a particular physiology to it. And the physiology of despair and loss of hope will create changes, particularly in the cardiovascular system and the immune system, that are really unhealthy. Uh, And at some level, simply tell the life force, you know, there's not room for you in here. Uh, In the old days of the mind-body connection, Bernie Siegel used to talk about the way that we gave the body messages to die. And despair that lasts and lasts can definitely be one of those. On the other hand, and we'll get more to this, it's also despair can be a wake-up call. Because often it isn't until the very darkest moment when we say, the usual way of looking at the world of looking at what happens in the world has not worked for me. Uh, I'm just perpetually unhappy. Now I'm in despair. Now my life has crumbled, and I better find another way. So despair, while not good for the body, (laughs) couldn't be really good as a wake-up call. And in that place between no longer and not yet, you see all variants of that. Some people would despair. Some people will find hope. And it turns out there's an entire biology of hope that enables the body um, to feed the brain in a new way. And I don't want to get into a whole physiological lecture because it's, it's beyond what we need this morning. But to say, have you seen some of the new meditation research that's come out? Dan Goleman has been doing some articles for the New York Times, and um, His Holiness has been very, very interested in science and Buddhism, and the way that meditation actually changes the brain so that you're less likely to be despairing. This is interesting. It's Mm -hmm. like we were talking last night. Do we have a happiness dream? Some of us have a better happiness set point. But as a biologist, my question has always been, like, if you didn't win the role of the happiness gene dice, are you screwed? (laughs) 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 Or is there something you can do after the fact to reset things? And it does seem that meditation is in and of itself a reset. And that was my interest in a long time, what Herbert Benson uh, called the relaxation response. And he, he did a, a really noble service in being one of the first ones to research the physiological changes of meditation and how it countered the effects of stress on the body. So that if, if stress will raise your blood pressure or give rise to cardiac arrhythmias, it can increase your cholesterol, it can increase the way that platelets stick to the lining of your arteries, it's an amazing thing, and that you develop heart disease. When you elicit what Benson called the relaxation response, what the Buddhists might say, oh, your own true nature. What are you doing? You're removing the obscurations um, to the clarity so that that true nature can shine out. That's what he, he would say, oh, that's the relaxation response. That's what it is. And the way that he defined it back in about 1967, mm-hmm. long time ago, was that it is an integrated brain state. 
caused by a certain part of the brain uh, called the hypothalamus that is a state of balance, peace, and homeostasis where your heart is acting like it should, your blood pressure is doing what it ought to, your immune system is in balance, and that is the basic function of the human body, that health and balance is what it does naturally. But then the question is, how does stress disrupt that balance? What goes on there? And uh, that, of course, is a lot of what we've been talking about. We've had a ball last (laughs) night and this morning in the car talking about these things, Mm -hmm. talking about how it is that our thoughts can do us in and that they have more more than one life. Just in this meditation, Sylvia, it's so much fun, isn't it, to watch the impermanence. The thoughts come and they go just to across that place of peacefulness, that place of what Benson might call the relaxation response, mm-hmm. what Sokni Rinpoche here is teaching as one's rigpa or own true nature. You see that, but then you also see the sticky thoughts. Did you see your sticky ones that didn't want to pass so easily? The ones that are just so delicious, you love to cling to them because they are so well known. They are so well known in there. And uh, I think I just want to say one thing about a kind of thought that we've talked about, and then I'll hand it back to you. But as I ran the mind-body clinic, I saw the same kinds of sticky thoughts in other people that I saw myself just this morning. And for many of us, the stickiest kinds of thoughts are the thoughts about not liking ourselves, thinking that we could do it better, that we should do it better, the ways that we judge ourselves, the ways that we get down on ourselves. And uh, when I think of these these kinds of thoughts, I have to say, I always think of one of my best friends, Loretta LaRoche. Did you ever see her on television, the stress lady? She's a riot. She's one of my oldest friends. I call her Her Holiness the Jolly Lama. She's hysterical. (laughs) She's hysterical. She's hysterical. What what was the name of her first book? Her first book, Relax, You May Only Have a Few Minutes Left. (laughs) It's hysterical. It is. It's hysterical the whole time. It is. I mean, it's, it's... it's, it's the basic teachings of the Buddha and everything about cognitive psychology told through humor. But she comes with props, and one of her props is a whip. And every time you say something to yourself, you flatulate a little. Oh, yeah, I shouldn't have thought that. <laughs> and I, I, think about, I think about that and think about the way that lack of forgiveness and lack of compassion develops for ourselves over time, even in terms of spiritual practice, of wanting to do better with our minds, there's a way that we penalize ourselves and punish ourselves because our minds are the way they are. And that, that comes up repeatedly. I was saying to Sylvia last night, Uh, Years ago, when I read about the first world parliament of religions, I was reading uh, a bit of Swami Vivekananda's address, 
That was the first time a Hindu had ever taught in the United States. And he said something that stuck with me, but intellectually. It didn't make the real change, but intellectually it was the first step. And that is, he said, your first spiritual duty is not to hate yourself. And I thought about that. So I'm going to share one one metaphor that has been really helpful for me uh, with this. Because, you know, I think over the years I've progressed. I really don't hate myself. I've opened my heart to myself, no matter what's happening. Uh, I think over time, another conversation we're having in the car is you realize you're not going to change. You are who you are. You're Michigas, you're Michigas. We have to translate that. Only half the people here got that. Gus is your crazy neurotic stuff, <laughs> which we all have, and it's not going away. You will hopefully have a new context in which that's the Michigas will live. That's that's all. All. <laughs> you just have a more spacious landscape for it, to it. and you quit clinging to it. And you joke with your friends about it. <laughs> that's all. But here's the metaphor that I have found incredibly helpful just over the last month. And of course, you know, when you go to teach, you always give people your very favorite metaphor of the moment. So you'll have to check in after a year and see if it had lasting value. But it's been wonderful for this month. And actually, it's a local metaphor because uh, I learned it in a conversation I was having with Michael Stillwater, who does these wonderful chant waves. Have you ever been to one of his chant waves? We were talking, and he said, Joan, you know, about that tendency to cling to judgment, he said, this, this has been helpful. He said, what if, as you were watching your mind, and I might say, watching your stress, because you'll feel your body clench up when you do this, as you're watching your mind and your body, the first time a judgment thought really starts to come in. What if you imagined that you were going into a restaurant? And it's a restaurant you'd been to all your life. You knew the menu well. And on the restaurant was the usual choice you made. Hair shirt. (laughs) (laughs) And you say, gee, I could have sautéed hair shirt for lunch. I know this food. But you looked a little bit further down the menu, and gee, there was mercy. And you thought, have they served mercy at this restaurant all this time? Has it been on the menu? And I just didn't see it. And suppose that time you said, I could choose mercy. And think about how spacious you would be. Because with mercy, there is no clinging, see? With mercy, there's spaciousness. And then that, that peace that comes when, you know, when you accept the impermanence, you're sitting there in your meditation, you're sitting there in your thoughts, it's just what's coming and going. That allows Benson's relaxation response to shine through. That's what lets the sun in your heart shine through. That's what lets the compassion shine through. And so, 
for me, that's the big thing that I work with is mercy and the spaciousness that comes with that. And um, that's what I want to leave you with is today's most powerful antidote to stress. Well, you're a fabulous teacher. I'm enjoying you so much. (laughs) I really am. I'm I'm a very big critic, let me tell you. (laughs) I set the bar extremely high, and you did great. (laughs) Now I'm worried about how I do. Would you like an order of hair? <laughs> so, first of all, uh, no longer and not yet is fabulous. That is really fabulous. I will remember that forever. I want to talk about the despair in a minute, about um, uh, because I, I've been thinking a lot about that recently. It's been these months with, and weeks with, uh, and I learned something really important about myself. So I'm going to come back to that. Because I'm very interested in your uh, um, your uh, suggestion that actually when despair takes over, in fact, that could be the catalyst. You say, whoa, look where I am. So I want to talk a little bit about that. But I want to start from the end about the compassion. First of all, I love the menu idea. Um, because it came to me recently. Actually, I was sitting up here, and it came to me um, thinking about why... Why do I do it to myself? Why does everybody do it to themselves? But why do I do it to myself as well? Think a thought, and then uh, feel not right about having thought the thought or had the feeling. You know, the, the, you shouldn't have thought that or felt that. Or Look how arrogant you are, Sylvia. Look how vain you are. Look how this you are. Look how that you are. Already, to even think that, that's, again, uh, either the hair shirt or the whip or, or the, the Buddha's analogy was... Uh, getting stabbed twice with a dagger. If you accidentally slip and stab yourself with a dagger, you take out the dagger and then you stab yourself again. The bad thought to begin with is already the first dagger. And then to take out that dagger and stab yourself with it, or to keep on stabbing yourself with it, is a bizarre and certainly an anti... It's counterintuitive to whatever we know about staying alive. You know, we, the, Our first impulse when we get born is to turn the head away so we can breathe. Why would we keep stabbing ourselves? As I was thinking about it, I was sitting on retreat, and uh, I remembered the story about uh, in one of these um, uh, meetings with the Dalai Lama with the Western psychotherapist somewhere along the way, uh, someone was talking, asked His Holiness about his own self-loathing, and His Holiness couldn't figure out what self-loathing was. So he had to discuss it uh, with his interpreter back and forth to make sure that he got the words right. And then when he got the words right, he looked at the person and he said, that's completely wrong. That's a mistake. <laughs> but that's a mistake. You know. uh, and so people talked about it a lot afterwards about, is there something about being born in the West and are Indians nicer to their children than we are to ours? And maybe it's you know the Puritan ethic coming out. There are all kinds of sociological reasons for suggesting that it's something that our parents did, you should be. But, you know, I think about myself. Actually, I had quite lovely parents who thought I did great most of the time. So I don't have a story about people told me I should have been better or 
kinder or whatever. But it came to me, actually, and I was very relieved. That it, that, and I, so that I'm kind of working with this as a construction. I wonder if it'll turn out to be wrong. I thought, why is this such a ubiquitous feeling? Ugh, I wish I had done it better. Why don't we just say, well, you know, what's done is done. I actually think it's, a, it's another permutation of our own compassionate heart. Mm-hmm. I think fundamentally it's so painful to us to cause pain yeah. that knowing that we've hurt somebody, yeah. for people whose wiring is right to begin with, it's the worst, you know. Worst. It's the worst. If somebody tells me that I have hurt their feelings mm-hmm. inadvertently, it hurts me tremendously, and I remember it forever. Yeah. Don't you? Absolutely. Forever. And, yeah. it, I, and if my children tell me that mm-hmm. I've hurt them, that's terrible, you know. And they remember forever. <laughs> they remember things that I don't remember, but I would feel yeah. horrible. I mean, and if I said that or I did that, well, you did, Mom, but it's okay. No, it's not okay. It's not okay that I did that. And I think it's because we want so, it's so painful to cause pain to somebody else that that's the part that catches us. It's not a peculiar superego from somewhere else. I think it's the, the rebound of our own, the echo of our own good heart is what I think it is. But having recognized that, the, the, the own good heart could expand its boundaries a little bit <laughs> and include me in the caretaking so that I could say to myself, whoops, you know, oh, I really, you know, oh dear, Sylvia. But, but really, dear Sylvia, and take care of me instead of me. So that I, I don't know exactly at that point, how are you going to end that equation? What would you do? Can you finish? Because I can't figure out exactly the end of it yet, Joan. That I'm aware that somehow if I could extend the boundary, I, if it happened that I automatically extended the boundaries of that compassion to include myself, that would be a great thing. That would be a great thing. So then the question is, how do you do that? You know, but that's, that's um, anyway, it's a serious question, how do you do it's, it? Well, it's a very serious question. It's enormously serious. You notice that you're suffering. There you go, Rose. That's right. Okay. There you go. Actually, you have reminded me of what I know. Thank you very much. Because of what I say to myself when I realize that, so more, more exactly gets to the point, is I say to myself, I'm in pain. Mm-hmm. If I, if I, you know, it takes me a long time sometimes to say to myself, I'm in pain. I think, I, I, you know, I, th- I watch my mind think itself, into a, think itself into a fury about something or other before it realizes I'm in pain. When it realizes I'm in pain, it shifts enormously. I think maybe I'm so loath to realize it because I think it's frightening to admit to yourself that you're in pain. If you don't exactly see how you're going to get out of the pain, then you don't... Yeah. It's good. Do you suppose that we are, as a culture, hesitant to admit that we made mistakes? I mean, the reason the reason I'm asking that, as if I'm naive about it, is that uh, many people here have heard the story, but maybe not you. So I'll tell you the story, so you can hear it while they they hear it again. That um, I went to uh, a week long teaching. His Holiness was teaching uh, 
from uh, Shanti Deva's Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life, and he was doing the whole of Chapter Six on patience, and it was a it was an amazing week. Mm -hmm. You know, twelve hundred people mm -hmm. day after day in residence in a mm -hmm. in a uh, hotel in the middle of Arizona, and here he is going verse by verse, and he was doing it in. Uh, Tibetan and having his translator, even though his English is so good, because he was doing nuanced exegesis of text, okay, verse by verse by verse, and then he'd be studying the next verse, and the translator would be translating what he just did. And it looks like he's not listening, and at one point, three or four days into the teaching, he's reading here, and then he suddenly looks up and says, no, that's not what I said. And the uh, translator said, no, yes, you did. And he said, no, I didn't. And it was a small point. It was just it was a, some point of grammar. It wasn't yeah. even the deep philosophy. And he said, "No, you know, Your Holiness, you didn't." He said, "Yes, I did." He said, "No, you didn't." <laughs> then he went back and he looked in the looked in his text back again. And then he, you know, he has a great laugh. You know, yeah, sits up and he says, ah, "I made a mistake." <laughs> <laughs> And it's so clear that it's nothing to him. You know, nothing gets lost. It's no big deal. He knows there was no one who made a mistake. A mistake happened. And he really knows not that there's even anyone to be forgiven. There's no one there. A mistake happened. And it was so clear that he got that. Why don't I know that? <laughs> recent presidents made very big mistakes and refused to admit it. And I submit that had they admitted it right up front, it would have passed over and we would have gone on to some other bit of news. But because they refused to admit their peccadillos, their errors, their sins, it became world-changing or at least changed their careers. I often think that uh, that um, 12-step groups are as uh, potent a spiritual force because people get to tell out their, the places that they've had difficulties. Yeah. You know, there's a, a practice uh, just about that. It reminded me of the 12-step practice. It's really one of the two practices that I've kept from Judaism. And the one I'm thinking of, at night there's a, a prayer called the Bedtime Shema. And it starts with just retrospecting your day and going through the day and looking for the little mistakes and looking for the disturbances in the flow and the places where you clung and the places where you were a bitch and the places where you wish you'd said something else but you didn't. And somehow working it through right then and there before it turns into the big regrets that are like anchors that pull you under. And that is what a 12-step program does too. It's a simple thing about making the amends and cutting down the half-life between seeing it and letting it go so that it doesn't go for a really long time. Mm -hmm. and it has always struck me as a, as a wonderful gift and any time that you have a chance to do that. You know, what's really, uh, 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 what came up in my mind just as you reminded me of that, which was, I think, an interesting convergence, is that kind of moral inventory, which you either uh, 
do intentionally, okay, I'm going to bed now, I'll do my moral inventory, or as part of a church liturgy, you say, okay, now I'm going to do a moral inventory. As part of 12-step practice, you do a moral inventory. <coughs> that uh, it's been my experience that if I sit at all, if I, if I uh, really do some meditation practice, not <coughs> even on retreat, I sit in my daily practice, whether or not I say, um, I'd like to have a moral inventory. <laughs> Actually, so, so I'm really not looking for a moral yes. inventory. Thank you very much. <laughs> really just like to settle down here. But if you settle down here, I have this great feeling of confidence in the mm. fundamental uh, compassionate uh, orientation of our own natural heart that if I settle down at all, it says, okay, here you go. This is what you missed. This is what you didn't say. This is the telephone call that you could have stayed on another 30 seconds mm -hmm. and you ended abruptly and it would have been really helpful to stay on. And it says it to me in a not dagger way. You know, I think to myself, oh, did I want to know this? But I actually <laughs> do want to know that. And it tells me in a tone of voice that I can hear. Mm -hmm. Esther was going to say something. And David, what, David? I just wanted to say that um, yesterday I noticed that a, a group of friends we've all known each other for 30 years, and all the other people in this group have been invited to a mutual friend's birthday. And I searched my place high and low. I, I didn't see my invitation anywhere. And I saw in me that the first item on the menu was her. Mm -hmm. And for me, I have to allow that for that moment. I just mm -hmm. have to allow that little boy to be her. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, it is conceivable to me that I've done something to hurt this friend's feelings. Why don't I just call? She doesn't live where I live. She lives off in Ukiah. And I called her up to say, hi, this is David. Have I done something? And, and you know, we said hello. And then mm -hmm. she said, no, I was just thinking about you. I want to invite you to my daughter's graduation. And I said, oh, I'd love to come. And that brings up a question for me. I was just wondering if I'd done something to hurt you, because I noticed I was invited to the partner, Pat's birthday party. And she said, well, you know, you could have done something to hurt me. That's well within the possibility. But I'm thinking about it, and there really isn't anything. I do ask. And I said, well, because, you know, Pat's birthday is coming up, and I didn't get an invitation. She said, you didn't receive your invitation. And all of a sudden, the whole thing became exactly what it was, which was it had been sent, whether it had actually gotten to my place, I got it lost in my less than totally meticulous housekeeping. <laughs> whether the postal service failed, I mean, all right there. In addition to which, it was the Saturday, and I couldn't go anywhere. <laughs> so I said to her, um, she said to me, we know Pat's birthday is, in fact, I had this conversation yesterday, it's today, and I'm going to call him up and wish him a happy birthday and sing my little happy birthday song to him on the telephone. And then I'm going to give him a little present. And I thought, wow, from something that was a little hurt has blossomed mm. an opportunity. Mm. But for somebody like me who is wounded, I'm a wounded person, and I'm not unique in the world. Um, I have to allow those few moments uh -huh. of actually uh -huh. being hurt, yes. a feeling yeah. like my own mother, really, who held me and sort of said, it's OK, you can cry, you can and then, with receiving that, mm. go on to be the other parts of me, too, not just that wounded little boy. Mm. And the second part of mm. what I want to do is I want to ask, what's the second practice that you routinely do this Oh, the morning practice. There's an evening practice and a morning practice. And uh, I think 
I retain them largely because the music touches me so much. There's something in the bones about that, that uh, and that's it. What is the morning practice? It's a, it's a, it's a song. Modani lifaneha melehai vichayom shachachazarta bi nishmoti bimalaraba imunoteha translating basically is hot dog god are you cool (laughs) (laughs) that is a thousand times better than the translation i was preparing (laughs) (laughs) i'm telling you the sages of old are turning in their graves This is such an amazing thing that you have seen fit in your infinite compassion to return me to this body again today for another day of life. See? Loretta LaRoche has another day of expressing this, oh, another way of expressing this sentiment. And that is that in the morning, you should turn to whoever is there and say, I'm back! (laughs) (laughs) My friend Carol has a friend who she says gets up in the morning and as he gets up he says, wow, this is the best day ever. And Carol says, how does he know? <laughs> and then she apologizes for it. She said, well, you know, it's just I'm an aversive type. It's just I'm an aversive type. <laughs> but imagine conditioning your, uh, your consciousness. With, because I'm thinking about that. If, you, if uh, the, the act of gratitude, I think, or the awareness of gratitude is putting the attention on um, uh, not on what plummets the heart yes. down, but what lifts it up. I've been thinking a lot about the metaphor of um, of the heart being a very sensitive kind of a an instrument, very much like a, a, a priceless musical instrument that plays the best kind of music in the world, mm-hmm. but falls out of tune very easily because mm-hmm. it's so well. Um, it's so sensitive to every nuance so that it has to be kept in tune all the time. So I heard recently that uh, when, um, uh, I can't remember which great pianist, when he went on tour, um, he would travel with his grand piano. I heard it in, in, context, in, in the context of what um, a complicated business his going on tour was because they had to come and move the grand out of his uh, his uh, house in New York City and then transport it around from city to city. This is some decades ago, middle of the 20th century. Uh, and imagine uh, you have to get it in a new place and get it tuned right away. So you have to have exactly the right piano and exactly the right tuner. And the tuner has to be the best tuner in the world for the instrument and the person using that instrument 
to make the most wonderful music. And I've been thinking of the heart as being something like that kind of delicate instrument that falls out of tune just so easily. The temperature drops a little bit. There's a little bit too much moisture in the air. Uh, the, uh, somehow there's too much rattling in the atmosphere. And that somehow that if we think of our own hearts as constantly needing to be tuned, to think about carrying my own instrument tuner with me all the time, and what instruments that implements, uh, tools that instrument tuner would have to have to keep the heart in tune. And I think of the way it keeps buffet, being buffeted by what happens. This is a story I was going to tell you about despair earlier. The folks here will corroborate that uh, this has been a, a complicated for all of us, six months, three months. And uh, for myself, it was just so extraordinary, overwhelmingly awful, mm. to see uh, the willful destruction of a city mm. and a country and a dropping of bombs on people. In the 21st century, where we do heart-lung transplants and stem cell engineering and all that to be at the level of, of killing each other because we haven't coerced each We haven't been able to cooperate. Mm. We haven't been able to talk long enough. I think about my, uh, my, uh, my five-year-old, six-year-old now grandson who says, we have to learn how to use our words. I think really that. So it was, it was so painful for me and I was so consumed with it. And the people here know I was quite active in all kinds of let's not have a war movements and let's stop the war movements. I was really very low about it and uh, feeling tremendous despair, really bordering on depression for a while. And at one moment, I was very much turned around, not in my, neither in my politics nor in my wish to have the world wake up to the fact that we'll have to live in another way if we're going to make it, so not with any amount of indifference, it suddenly occurred to me that part of what was contributing to my despair was my own tendency to fret, my own uh, hindrance, uh, my own chelation of uh, obsessive worry that had, in fact, not only deplored what was happening, but written the worst possible scenario for the end of it. And it suddenly occurred to me that I didn't know that that was going to happen. I actually have a clue of what it's going to be worse or better. I think it couldn't be a good thing, but I don't know what's going to happen. And when I realized that, and I realized that I was uh, the extra stabbing that I was doing was by painting the picture worse than it was in advance of it being, and then demoralizing myself and robbing myself of the energy to do something, because it was really, if you come to the place with so much despair, then there's no hope. So I was going to tell you about that when you were talking about the, you know, the despair, the, the despair, the despair, and how it turns into hope, and the chemistry of that, or the biology of that. So I want to tell you in front of everybody and have you talk to that. Because how about the other one you said, when it gets so desperate? How does that work? It can. We know the cognitive psychology, a lot of cognitive psychology, is about just this point. And how it is that we can keep positive and hopeful and not become so pessimistic that it turns, turns into despair and from there into depression. So that's 
there's, there's been a lot written and a lot of techniques that have been brought forth. And, you know, the thing I like to remind myself about is that actually pessimists are much more realistic, but optimists are much happier. So, you know. <laughs> you have to bear that in mind. There was a guy, Albert Ellis, years ago. Yeah. And he, he described exactly what you were doing. We all do this. The headache that you're sure is a brain tumor. The, you know, whatever it may be. The recession that means you'll be homeless in, in a week. Uh, all that as awfulizing. And sometimes what I like about these funny words is they're like the menu. Suddenly you realize, oh, that's what I'm doing. And what it does is it's the mother of awareness so that suddenly you notice it's just awfulizing. I'm just doing that thing that human minds do and in fact I do have a choice here. Mm -hmm. One of the niftiest ways that <clears throat> cognitive psychology works with awfulizing is to take whatever your worst fantasy is and work it up into its worst possible conclusion. Catastrophizing. So yes, you, cast, you catastrophize <laughs> on your awfulizations. <laughs> you know, the whole, the whole thing becomes funny because you become a parody of yourself. Eventually you say, this is truly ridiculous. You know that Loretta, who's a great teacher, she says you get to the point where you say, life is a joke and I'm it. <laughs> 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 so that that's part of it. It's like the theater, the comedy of the absurd. And if one thing you know from meditation, you are the comedy of the absurd. It is extraordinary what passes through the mind. And of course, if you allow yourself simply to be amused by it, it's fine. If you close down on I should have been doing it differently, you'll have an unhappy meditation. <laughs> but the the optimist and pessimist is no different than how you would deal with your mind in meditation. And that's what meditation is. It's training for looking at the mind the rest of the time. But essentially, when something difficult happens, whether it's a war or, you know, God forbid a child who's sick. That's the one that gets me. A kid in trouble. Um, that's a big hook. But there are three characteristics of optimists and three of pessimists, which are kind of good to keep in mind. And that is, an optimist, when something bad happens, will, will say, this is a challenge. You know? It's a challenge to whatever, to learn to live better. It's a challenge maybe that um, I really need to be doing something else with my life. Or it's a challenge to how I'm going to cope with my thinking or what I'm going to do with my health, whatever. But they look at it as a change agent where something good will come out of. And certainly some of us did that about the war. You know, look around. Didn't you do that saying, oh, well, there have never been so many people who have marched for peace. That's an essentially optimistic thing. The second thing that optimists do, uh, and these are called the three C's. It's a, it's a simple mnemonic is look at things as a challenge. Then they have a healthy view of control. That's a whole teaching in itself, no. right? Hey. What's a healthy view of control? <laughs> Oy, I'm a control freak. Every day I see, and yet another 
insightful way just how controlling I actually am. Um, but an optimist, it's not so much that they stop controlling, because that's part of the human nature. Mm -hmm. We want to do this to be safe. It's once again we get spacious around it. But optimists have the capacity to let go, which actually rests on a kind of underlying faith that maybe the universe is unfolding in some interdependent way that um, will unfold in a flow that we could join. But in fact, we're not responsible just in and of ourselves mm -hmm. for being the doer that creates that flow. So there's a sense of being able to let go to what is that's optimistic. And the third C is something called commitment. So we, we've looked at challenge, control. The third is commitment. And commitment is a view. It's a framework um, that somehow or other allows the events of life to fit into something bigger in a way that gives them meaning and gives them positive meaning. So I'll contrast that to the way that an, a pessimist thinks about why bad things happen. A pessimist thinks in terms of what are called the three P's. And that is, first of all, they take something personally. There's a line at the supermarket. That's because they all got on their cell phone when they saw you drive up. They <laughs> <laughs> said, we'll all get in line. You know, because that's when you say to yourself, why do I always pick the busiest time to come here? This is another teaching of Her Holiness, Loretta. Um, <laughs> but taking things personally. The, the other thing is to something bad happens and you see it as um, pervasive. Pervasive. So not only is there a line at the supermarket, but your children are doing poorly in school. You always marry the wrong man, <laughs> the wrong woman. You take the wrong job. Pervasive is your awful life. And the third P is permanent. And permanent is you are never going to get any better because this is the story of your life. It is in your bones that is who you are. So Martin Seligman, who is the, quote, father of positive psychology, and has written so much about optimism and pessimism, says the war cry of a pessimist is, it's all my fault. I mess up everything that I do, and it's the story of my life. Now, many years ago, as I learned these frameworks for optimism and pessimism, it became clear to me that I think like a pessimist. That's my predilection. Those are exactly the places where I go. And it was so valuable to me to actually see that. Because once I saw it, then I could identify it as it came along, and then I could say, I have a choice. I don't actually have to go to personal today. You know, I could pick <laughs> challenge off the menu. <laughs> but again, it all comes down to awareness, because without awareness, and that's the last piece of the, the question, Sylvia, is, Sometimes, when life is happy, we don't have much of an awareness. Why bother having an awareness? It's all great. All wonderful things are happening. But when you have really despaired, 
I think. When all the doing in the world hasn't helped, when all the awfulizing hasn't helped, when the bottom has fallen out of things, and you're swimming in the soup of don't know, far from the shore of not yet, far from that shore, then you can actually say to yourself, like a 12-step program, mm -hmm. I am completely helpless. Mm -hmm. I'm powerless over this addiction. My addictions to my thoughts, to my patterns, to my way of being, to my mishigas, I am powerless over it. However, step two, there may be some chance that a power greater than I has the ability to return me to sanity. Mm -hmm. And maybe I could take refuge in that, you see. Whatever it is, whether it's the three jewels that you're taking refuge in, or cognitive psychology, or the body of Christ, or the reality of grace, mm -hmm. whatever it may be. But that, ultimately, it doesn't matter, you see, how you get into this, but it is despair that initiates those steps of change, ultimately. Unless you're really lucky, and you've just one day said, oh, gee, I'm so happy, but I think there's a way I could be happier still. <laughs> I think I'm going to let you have the last word on that, because that was so well said. I'm just really... We don't, we, we're very good Buddhists here, there's always a quote, we never applaud, but today, we will. <laughs> Was that a treat or what? <laughs> How about we sit for one minute together and... Someone is reminding me to remind you that uh, Ajahn Jemnian is coming for, um, uh, from May 30th to June 5th at Angela Center. He's an extraordinary experience. It's a, it's a thing to be with Ajahn Jemnian. He is unique and amazing. Well, I'll tell you the line from Ajahn Jemnian, and maybe we can sit with that in our heart. When he was here last year and teaching... Uh, on a Wednesday morning here for whoever was here on that Wednesday morning. Gary Buck was translating and someone asked him about um, uh, dealing with anger when it came up in the heart. Again, the question would be how would you get the heart back into its right, in its right tune if, if it was overwhelmed with anger. And uh, uh, he listened, you know, because he has to listen to Gary. But Gary was translating for him, and he was looking at the person, and you could see that he really could feel that question, got the question. And then he talked for some period, of a couple of minutes, and he was gesturing about it uh, here and here and here and here. And um, then Gary said, uh, Ajahn Jamnian said, that he really uh, understands your question, that when the heart is inflamed with anger, it really hurts uh, like, a, like an illness. He said, so when that happens, you should fill your mind with the coolness of peace mm -hmm. and let that peace flow down over your heart. And everybody sat quietly for a minute. And then someone said, Gary, would you ask Ajahn Jemnian, please, how do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> but 
The wonderful thing about Ajahn Jamnian is when you're with him, you get how he does it. So I really, it's a very, so maybe we could sit in this last minute and let the cool feeling of peace that I'm sure is amply buoyed up by the great feeling of delight at having uh, shared um, with other people. Such an extraordinary morning of teaching. And uh, let the delight augment the strength of that, the coolness of peace, (coughs) so that it spreads out from us into our own hearts and into the hearts of all the people here and all the people that live in the Rolodex, in the address book, in each of our hearts, and the rest of the six billion people who live on this planet, who we don't know, but who want, just as we do, (coughs) to be peaceful and happy.